I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, no snark, no belief, no debunking, no stage fright. This is Encounter 63, The Marsh Gas Life. This is a talk I gave July 22nd, 2019 in Dexter, Michigan. I'd been doing a lot of general UFO talks during the summer, but the library in Dexter wanted me to hit the 1966 events pretty heavily. Now, this isn't the most in-depth treatment you'll ever hear of this subject, but I had a limited amount of time. I think the sound is okay. Sadly, I was not able to bring an elaborate PA system with me. There's a link to the slides I showed in the show notes at saucerlife.com if you want to follow along with the visuals. I hope you enjoy it, and stay tuned afterward for some additional comments. Okay. Hi. Uh, welcome. Thank you all for coming out. This is a, uh, a, a great-sized crowd for such a nice night after um, you know the equatorial, <laughs> tropical temperatures we've had. So... Uh, so thank you very much for coming out to hear a little bit about uh, the history of, of flying saucer lore and culture in, uh, in American history, and uh, especially about some of the stuff that went on around here uh, that, had a, um, that had a profound effect on how the nation and the media and the government perceived UFOs, but was also, that turning point was also a product of its time in the mid-1960s. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, a little bit. Um, yeah, there it goes. My name is Aaron Gullius, and I'm a, a writer and a historian and a podcaster. And my podcast is called The Saucer Life. And it's, it's basically, if you're familiar with Dan Carlin's hardcore history, it's like that, but not six hours long. And it comes out twice a month instead of twice a year. So, so that was kind of my, my, uh, my model for that. Um, you, you may, if you were listening to NPR yesterday, you may have heard me on, um, on uh, Sam Sanders' show talking about the supposed Area 51 invasion that's taking place on September. I got to go on NPR and talk about that, which was very, very, things I didn't expect to be doing um, this week. But uh, that was a lot of fun. Uh, my actual day job that actually, because... Flying saucer stuff, shockingly, does not pay the bills. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of people walking around talking about flying saucers, acting like they're making a living off it. They ain't. Uh, my, my day job is I, I teach history at Mott Community College in Flint, Michigan. I've been there for about, uh, about 13 years. And, um, and, and so that's what I do. And, uh, and, and what I've done, I've, I've written a number of books, but the ones that are relevant to this topic, uh, extraterrestrials, and the American Zeitgeist, Alien Contact Tales since the 1950s. Um, basically, that's an examination of uh, claims of contact with usually human-appearing people from other planets that are usually in our solar system and usually have messages of love and peace and happiness and, and things like that. How that sort of reflected the times and, and, and changed throughout uh, recent history. I've got, uh, I've got a couple copies of that for sale if you're interested. Uh, the Chaos Conundrum is a, a less thinky, more fun collection of essays about stuff. 
uh, the Conspiracy Theories book with the long subtitle that I didn't write and can ever get right when I try to say it out loud, so I won't, um, is uh, basically a book about conspiracy culture in American history. And The Paranormal and the Paranoid is an exploration of how the paranormal and conspiratorial subculture of the 80s and 90s influenced science fiction TV and how science fiction TV influenced the paranormal culture of the 90s and that, that, sort, of, that sort of interplay. Uh, that book was mostly written so I could write my X-Files DVDs off on my taxes. <laughs> my, uh, my accountant, who is still a free man, says is, is absolutely, uh, absolutely fine. Um, any of these books, uh, any of these books you can get uh, through Melcat uh, Interlibrary Loan System here in Michigan. And I, I encourage you to do that. After all, if the library's already bought it, you don't really need to, right? So every time I'm in a library, I tell people, you know, use the library. It's, it's great, and they enjoy that. So that's, and I, I've written some other boring stuff that doesn't have to do with weird stuff, but uh, that's generally what I've done. So. What we're going to do tonight, the things we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at, at sort of the beginning of the modern UFO flying saucer phenomenon in the United States. And I, I, I narrowed that down because, yes, I know things were seen in the sky before 1947. You don't have to tell me about Texas in 1897, and you don't have to tell me about mystery airships. I know that, or the book of Ezekiel. I know. I know things have happened outside the United States. However, the library closes at some time tonight, and I need to go home eventually. So you have to sort of constrain these things to various, uh, various parameters, but we'll be talking about the beginning, and we'll be talking about government involvement and investigation into strange things in the sky. Um, flying objects, you might call them, that were unidentified, and what the government's involvement in that, uh, in that was, and how that changed over the years. And that includes, of course, a major sort of nexus point here in Dexter and the surrounding areas back in 1966. How many of you know that something happened in Dexter in 1966? Could you all go out and tell everybody in the rest of the state that something happened out in Dexter in 1966? Because very few of them seem to know. I was in, where was I last week? I was in Heartland. And they were like, Dexter? You mean, you mean right down the road? And like, yeah. Yeah. And these are people who, they would have been there. I mean, age-wise, they would have been aware. So it's... It's one of these things that's well-known in this area and well-known among UFO people sort of nationwide, but other than that, it's, it's not one of those things that's, that's super, uh, super huge. We're going to talk a little bit about personal encounters, um, including encounters with these guys. Um, they're, they're great. they got the blobby faces and the tube. Um, they're, that's a weird thing. And because I'm a teacher, because I teach, um, I suffer from this, and tonight you will too. We're going to talk about what we learn, like actual things we learn, um, and what we can what we can understand about uh, about history, in some ways from what we talk about. So, in the interests of of full disclosure and being a real historian and and not sort of abandoning that to be flying saucer guy for the evening, 
which I have a problem with. Why flying saucers? Well, for me, professionally, personally, uh, why flying saucers? Well, um, in graduate school, I needed to choose a topic to do research on for my, uh, for my thesis, uh, my master's thesis, and it came down to Cold War flying saucer culture or Cold War professional wrestling. <laughs> and giving away my age a little bit, this was in the pre-YouTube era, and so old professional wrestling was really, really difficult to find. And so I, I, was, I sort of, sort of reluctantly went with uh, went with flying saucers. Um, I just gotten engaged at the time, and I'm, I'm talking to my advisor about. Uh, well, it's, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be you know sort of portrayals of of non-American wrestlers and how that reflected you know immigration stereotypes, or it's gonna be flying saucers. And she just looks at me and she says. I cannot believe anybody is marrying you. <laughs> which, was, which was fair. I mean, fair statement. So why flying saucers sort of, sort of broadly, historically? Because we look at history through various lenses, whether that's the lens of politics or economics or religion or spirituality or gender or sexuality or ethnicity or class. We can look at history through focusing on particular aspects of the story of, in this case, the United States during this particular period of time. And I think UFO belief, UFO culture is an aspect of a number of those things. It ties into political aspects and governmental aspects, particularly the, particularly, rather, the relationship between American citizens and their government during the Cold War. I think it ties into elements of religion and spirituality in mid-century America. Uh, I, I think those two things will come across pretty clearly tonight. And I think it ties into gender a little bit, ties into to ideas of race a little bit. But politics and, um, and spirituality in particular and, and so UFO culture, since 1947, provides that kind of insight. And it's not that we can't get insight by looking at other things, and it's not, like I'm saying, without understanding the UFO culture, you will never understand American history. That is a dumb thing to say. Um, and it makes you sound crazy. Um, and I talk about UFOs. I have to work very hard not to sound crazy. So... Um, <laughs> If any of you have ever talked to people about UFOs, you understand. Um, yeah. So, the beginning. Uh, not too long ago, well, 72 years, I think 72, been around what, tens of thousands of years of human civilization, relatively recently, 1947, June 24th. One of the two dates argued about as being the real International UFO Day. Um, I love the fact that UFO people can't even agree on UFO Day. <laughs> that sums up the UFO field in a nutshell. Idaho businessman Kenneth Arnold is flying a private plane near Mount Rainier in the state of Washington. He sees a flash of blue light out of his airplane window. He looks, 
and he sees what he calls a number of chevron-shaped objects skipping through the air. Like a saucer, is sort of how he described it. Which leads to the phrase flying saucer being invented, but he didn't see the classic disc-shaped things that you can sort of see in the picture here. They kind of looked sort of rounded, sort of crescent-shaped, um, I always, man, I'm really giving away my age. I sort of, if you remember the old Adam West Batman show, <laughs> these are like the batarangs that Batman would throw to knock out various, uh, various palookas who were, who were chasing him and Robin. So Kenneth Arnold sees this in 1947, and he is not shy about going on, on every media outlet he, could, he possibly can to talk about this. And not too long later, in Roswell, New Mexico, in, on July 2nd, something crashed on a ranch. And personnel from Roswell Army Airfield in nearby Roswell went to collect the debris, and they issue a press release saying, flying disc crashes, Army retrieves it, or things along those lines. Now, a lot's been made of that headline. How many of you have heard of Roswell? Yeah, Roswell. Okay. So um, Roswell's one of those things that's like, oh. Um, so here's the thing. That headline has caused a lot of problems because the Army Air Force retracted it very quickly and said, nope, 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 nope. Weather balloon. Weather balloon. And so what's interesting is the Roswell case is really kind of ignored after that point until the late 1970s when people who were there at the time start talking to researchers like Bill Moore and Stanton T. Friedman and you get books like Crash at Corona and the Roswell UFO incident and the whole Roswell story begins to take place. The thing is, in the late 1940s, there were a number of crashed flying saucer stories, some of which, like the crash at Aztec, New Mexico, were sort of come up with by some fairly shady characters involved in some, some weird sort of oil prospecting schemes. And so among serious UFO researchers in the 40s and 50s and 60s, crashed saucer stories were something that they, they didn't really want to look at. The answer is not going to be there. It's, it's been painted with this brush of being, being a con, being a scam, being a hoax. Later on, it would get picked up. But there at the beginning, we, we seem to think, okay, there was Kenneth Arnold and there was Roswell. What we don't often talk about, and we don't often know sometimes, is that also a lot of other people were seeing things. By the end of July, there were 850 reports of strange flying objects in the American sky. And that is a lot. And if, we, whoops, and if we put our history hats on, we, we see that by the end of August, the U.S. Army Air Force, and pretty soon I'm going to be able to just say Air Force because that change is going to take place. Um, the U.S. Army Air Force is starting to take a closer look because we are, at this point, two years out from the end of World War II. Two years out, almost exactly, in August, from the United States using the first atomic weapons in warfare. 
we are at a point in 1947 where the Cold War with the Soviet Union has begun, but we're not quite sure what that is going to look like yet, because we have nukes and they don't. But we're pretty sure they're going to develop them, and now we're seeing things, people are seeing things in the sky, and people in the Air Force are saying, I don't know what these things are. <coughs> one, one guy in particular, General Nathan Twining, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, down in Dayton, sends a memo to his superiors at the uh, complete history geek out moment. You know it used to be the Department of War, and now it's the Department of Defense? For like six and a half minutes in 1947, it was, it was something called, goofily called the National Defense Establishment. So he sends his memo to the, his superiors at the National Defense Establishment and says, people are seeing real things. These are not all hallucinations. I am a general, and I don't recognize what any of these things might be from the description. Basically, boss, if this is something that's ours, that's top secret, that I'm not supposed to know about, please let me know, and I will shut up. Otherwise, I really think we should look into this as a matter of national security and securing our airspace, because something is violating our airspace, and lots of people are seeing. And Twining's superiors agree, and they establish Project Sign. Projects, and this is, this is a, a great picture of, of one of the, the rooms that the Project Sign guys were working on um, there between December of 47 and February of 49. This is at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And um, Project Sign's job was to investigate strange things in the air, generally strange things in the air reported by the military or commercial pilots. They didn't have a UFO hotline set up where anybody who saw anything would call Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and the Air Force would run out to Topeka or whatever and check it out. So they're concentrating on, on incidents that were reported by people they saw as reliable, which was basically people like them, professional military people who, and, and professional pilots who would be considered trained observers. So Project Sign looks at a number of things, including the death of Captain Thomas Mantell. And this is a interesting, who's heard of Captain Mantell's case? Okay, good, there's, there's, always, there's, always, a, there's always a few, so that's good. Uh, Mantell was a captain in the Kentucky Air National Guard. Uh, during World War II, he'd been a decorated combat pilot. Um, Long story short, he is in, uh, he is in his aircraft. It's a uh, propeller-driven fighter plane. He is chasing an object higher and higher and higher. He describes it. He, he says it's structured. It's metallic. I'm chasing this. He goes basically higher than his plane can handle, stalls out, crashes, dies. So not only is Project Sign investigating this, the whole Air Force is investigating this. And the media is aware of it because this doesn't happen a lot. And the, uh, the explanation from the Air Force and, and, and Project Sign was that, uh, was that he was chasing the planet Venus. 
How many of you have seen the planet Venus? <laughs> Is it a structured metallic object that runs away from you? <laughs> no. Um, later on, about 10 years later, uh, the Air Force would issue a, a, a sort of updated statement saying that it was a, a weather balloon known as a skyhook weather balloon, um, which was a, a very sort of high-altitude weather balloon. Um, it may have had some sensing equipment on it that was designed to be sort of espionage-ish in nature, and it was absolutely something that they could not talk about in 1948, but they could in 1958. Looking at what skyhook balloons looked like, looking at where they were launched from and, and their, their patterns of travel, as far as unrealistic Air Force explanations of UFOs go, this one's not bad. Um, the problem is they would use that for everything, <laughs> even, even in the case of a pilot out in North Dakota named, uh, named uh, Lieutenant Gorman, who actually got into sort of, sort of aerial combat situation with something very like what Mantell saw, was also explained away as a balloon. Well, the thing is, by the end of 1948, some of the people on Project Sign, which was made up of a mixture of civilian scientists and technicians and Air Force people, some of them start to, to say, okay, we've got some options about what these things may be. One of the options, they say, is interplanetary spacecraft, which was not really a popular or common thing to say in 1948. We are still in the Something is in the sky. Is it ours or is it the Soviets? But now they're saying, yeah, maybe interplanetary. Air Force not happy with that explanation. Um, basically, the, the suggestion is, why don't you eggheads go back to the drawing board and come up with an actual answer to what these things are and whether or not they're a threat, instead of saying, among the many things they could be are interplanetary spacecraft. Yeah, it, it seemed a little, a little fanciful. And so the Air Force gets irritated with Project Sign, and uh, they have some conclusions issued, which were over here, because I'm going to trip over a court if I go that way, um, and uh, issued by General William McKee. And this is what McKee said to the press. During two years of thorough investigation, no evidence was found which would indicate that the reported flying saucers were anything but the result of natural phenomena. On the other hand, all the evidence indicated that the reports of unidentified flying objects could be accounted for under three major headings. One, misinterpretation of various conventional objects. Two, a mild form of hysteria. Three, or simple hoaxes. It has been suggested that what people actually have been seeing is the result of some of our own secret experiments, guided missiles or new types of planes or flying weapons. This is emphatically not the case. None of the three military departments nor any other agency in government is conducting experiments, classified or otherwise, with disc-shaped flying objects which could be a basis for the reported phenomena. Okay. You listen to his tone of voice. When did he get the most irritated? Yeah, the idea this was ours, isn't it? That is emphatically not the case. We have no secret weapons that are disc-shaped. 
Who said anything about discs? General McKee? <laughs> it's a very sort of bureaucratic, bet-hedging sort of way of saying it, isn't it? I, we don't have anything secret that people might be reporting that is circular. What about the, the oblong-shaped ones? Or the spherical ones? Or the blobby ones? Or just the weird ones? No. But case closed. Whatever it is, it's, it's one of those three things. Hysteria, hoax, misidentification. However, the Air Force continued to work on this under Project Grudge. <laughs> According to someone who worked on Project Grudge, uh, Captain Edward Ruppelt, this was not a randomly computer-generated cryptonym for this project. This was absolutely the Air Force saying, we're assembling a new group of experts, none of whom think these things can, be un can remain unexplained. Grudge's objective was basically to explain every sighting as something mundane. It ran from February to December of 1949. It came to some conclusions in a 600-page report that you can read on the internet the next time you're having trouble sleeping. <laughs> came to four conclusions. Sign only came to three. This came to four. It included the three project sign conclusions, but added a fourth one. People are pathologically insane. <laughs> Psychopathy. Now some people, some people, you know, a third of them, they're just panicking and, and thinking it's something they can't explain. There's a whole other group that are just nuts. The Air Force officially gets out of the flying saucer business, which leads to the rise of civilian UFO investigation outfits. Um, and the two huge ones at the time were NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, and APRO, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, and also roughly 94,000 smaller ones, like the Detroit Flying Saucer Club, over the way, that uh, I'll talk about them briefly in a little bit because I love them. But um, we're getting people saying the Air Force isn't going to do anything. We are going to train investigators to go out and interview witnesses and come to conclusions about this ourselves. Of course, the Air Force didn't stay out of it for long because people kept seeing things, including in 1952 over Washington, D.C., which... Here's the thing, and if we weren't there for it, like I wasn't, uh, despite the fact that I remember things from way before I was born, because that's all I study. Um, if you weren't there in 1952, really worried about the fact that everybody was building bigger and bigger bombs and more and more effective delivery systems to deliver those atomic and hydrogen bombs to you, it's hard to... Um, hard to put yourself in the position of, of being that panicked about seeing things in the sky that, that you know, most people were not worried about aliens at this time. They were worried about, you know, death from above kind of things. People kept asking the Air Force, what is going on? And the Air Force said, it's nothing to worry about. And people kept saying, I think it is. And so the Air Force launches Project Blue Book. And this is Dr. J. Allen Hynek. We'll be returning to this guy who... Um, 
despite what you may think, is awesome um, in his own sweet little way. Project Blue Book ran from 1952 to 1969 and collected over 13,000 UFO reports that were investigated by Air Force officers and scientific advisors like Dr. Hynek, who, is, who was an astrophysicist from Northwestern University outside of Chicago. We'll return to Project Blue Book and Dr. Hynek in a bit. But while all this is going on, what we've, what we've got scientists and the Air Force saying, it's this, it's that, we can't say for sure what things are, but we know what they aren't, and they aren't anything dangerous or anything threatening, there were other people who said, we know exactly what they are because we've met them. And they've landed, and I've talked to them. But first, what can we learn? The government took UFOs seriously as a national security issue. Any stories you hear about the government entering into secret treaties with the aliens that they rescued from Roswell and building underground bases and um, all the other things that you start hearing in the 80s and 90s, a lot of that didn't really come about till the 80s and 90s. It was sort of projected back. Comic book fans call it retcon. There's a lot of UFO lore that was sort of retroactively put into the continuity layer, which makes trying to trace the story of what people thought and believed incredibly difficult. Because you tend, what tends to get imprinted on your mind is the stuff you grow up with. And I grew up with the stuff in the 80s and 90s that projected a whole strange history back onto the 40s and 50s. And so you have to sort of start over and go back to actual documents from the time. So the government takes things in the sky they can't identify very seriously because they could be dangerous. But they weren't really dangerous. They were our friends. I mean, this guy said so. His name was George Adamski. Born in Poland, came to the U.S. as a young boy, fought in World War I, comes back, uh, develops an ish, uh, two interests, two main interests, astronomy and um, sort of spiritualist philosophies. And he's able to indulge in both during the 1920s and 30s in California. Um, there's an observatory at a place called Mount Palomar. I don't know if you've heard of it. Big observatory. Adamski, Professor George Adamski, he wasn't a professor, but he called himself a professor, worked at Mount Palomar in the sense that he ran the hamburger stand down the road from the Mount Palomar Observatory, where he had a telescope. He called it Professor Adamski of Mount Palomar. Um, observatory? No. Um, in, the, in the 20s and 30s, he creates an organization called the Royal Order of Tibet. They preach a, uh, a, a, a message of universal love and brotherhood, and togetherness, and he writes pamphlets against war and greed. And then in the 1940s, he writes a science fiction book about some called Pioneers of Space, astronauts who go out and visit the Venusians on Venus and the Saturnians on Saturn and the Martians on Mars, and my favorite, the Moonanites on the moon. <laughs> They're all wonderfully nice people, all of whom are way better than us here on Earth. Because, I mean, had to look at us warlike and greedy and all that. And then he starts lecturing on flying saucers. Why is he an expert? 
He's taking pictures with his telescope right here. Um, for the record, light bulbs, hubcap. I've heard from a Chrysler. I'm not entirely sure. And uh, this is this is a Christmas ornament. I'm. I mean, there's, you know, the Venusians were smart. They built their flying saucers with a place to tie the string to hang it up <laughs> on the background. Now, I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't be snarky. Um, the George Adamski Foundation exists and takes very seriously any criticism of Adamski's photographs. Uh, in my book, uh, the, my contact ebook, I needed some of his pictures. I had to. I didn't lie. I told the truth. I said, I'm, this is not an attempt to debunk or ridicule his photographs. What I didn't say was, you don't have to. You just have to print them. And you don't have to argue that these do not look authentic. Um, they fell for it. They're, they're nice people. Um, they're, they're nice people. But Adamski claimed to have met these Venusians with, with names like Orthon and Furcon and Ramu. And he traveled to Venus and Saturn, and he met with their cosmic masters. And amazingly, shockingly, they followed a philosophy exactly like what he'd been talking about since the 1920s and 30s. And their civilizations were all exactly how they were in his science fiction book. And people said, what a fraud. But I think something else is going on. In, in, in the book, I, I argue, I make this argument. And what I think was going on, partially, not entirely, he's telling nations, get rid of your nuclear weapons. Embrace peace. Abandon greed. Abandon racial disharmony. Love one another. All humans are basically the same. 1952, 53, 54, United States. You don't say things like this without people thinking you're a communist. And so when Adamski, Adamski uh, came to speak at, to the Detroit Flying Saucer Club, the FBI office in Detroit got so many letters from people who were like, oh my gosh, I went to my Flying Saucer Club and they're all communists. And the FBI checks it out. And they, they, they were a little concerned about some of these UFO space brother um, theories and, and their, their politics. But they weren't actively planning revolution. They were just flying saucer people. Come on, guys, with the FBI, we've got actual kidnappings and murders and counterfeiting to solve. So the FBI doesn't go round up all the flying saucer people for their political beliefs. And so they're able to kind of get away with it and keep pushing what at the time was a fairly radical, uh, a fairly radical political agenda. Now, Adamski did get a visit from the FBI because he'd been telling people he worked for the FBI. And they came in and don't do that. Um, they came in and visited him and said, sir, please don't tell people you work for the FBI. There's also just another, one more contactee because, because he, he's uh, interesting. Truman Bethram from California. Uh, he claimed that his sighting took place before Adamski's. They all claimed theirs took place first. I just didn't write about it till now, they said. Um, he, uh, he swears it was a flying saucer, as the headline says. It landed in California, where, it was, where he was a railroad yard worker. 
and he meets uh, a space captain from the planet Clarion, and it's a lady named Aura Rains. And he describes her as tops in shapeliness and beauty, which is not a line that's ever worked for me. <laughs> uh, but um, but he the way he does, he it's, it is pure schoolboy crush stuff, and he is just he is clearly in love with her. And while his wife is pretty certain he hasn't met a space woman. She's pretty sure he's met a woman, and she is not happy, and she eventually leaves him, um, even though George Adamski came out to try to convince her of the truth of the space people to save their marriage. It was a whole weird scene, man. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting. Um, Aura Rains was, was, you know, everything his wife was not. And there were others, another guy, Howard Mencher, who um, left his wife and family when he met a fellow flying saucer believer that he was convinced, or who he claimed to be convinced, was his lover from another life when they both lived on other planets. And, and once again, she was everything his wife wasn't. And, and, so, and he was everything her husband wasn't. And so, what can we learn? Flying saucers aren't always just about flying saucers. Sometimes they're about political activism. Sometimes, even today, especially today, depending on where you're looking. Um, sometimes it's about finding an outlet for your unhappiness at home. Um, it's a lot of contactees. I, I, I wish I had time for more contactees. My, my podcast goes into contactees a lot because I love them. Um, but uh, they're there, and they're in the background. And the thing about the contactees is after the first couple of years they're really sort of shunted off into the contactee corral. And people who believe these contactee stories really believe these contactee stories. And many of them do still today, especially when, the, when it's not a physical meeting with the aliens, when it's a psychic channeled connection. Because how can you disprove that? Well, how can you prove it? How can you disprove it? You can't prove me wrong. Um, one of the, the beings that would channel messages was a, a being named Ashtar, or Supreme Commander Ashtar. He's in charge of the fleet of ships um, captained by uh, people like Buddha and Jesus that are protecting the planet from, uh, from evil enemy forces. Um, and at some point before the Earth is eventually destroyed, all of those who believe in the mission of the Ashtar fleet will be saved. We used to just call it the rapture, but then they added flying saucers. But if you Google Ashtar, people on the internet, anybody can claim the channel Ashtar, and they're still doing it. So the, the contactees are still out there, but serious UFO researchers didn't want anything to do with contactees. Because for groups like NICAP, which was headed by a guy named Donald Kehoe, a, a retired major from the US Marine Corps. He'd been a pilot. He'd worked for the Department of Commerce. He's a serious aviation journalist with a lot of connections in Washington, DC. He wanted to get this thing sorted out, and he felt the Air Force was stonewalling him. And so NICAP was sort of half UFO investigation agency, half lobbying group trying to get Congress to independently investigate the UFOs without the Air Force's interference. And a serious organization like that has no time for people who 
leave their wife for the woman who was their reincarnated girlfriend from Saturn. Serious ufologists don't like the contactees, didn't like the contactees, which, yeah, I can see that, actually. So, getting back to Blue Book and getting back to, uh, getting back to Dexter. By 1966, Blue Book was in full swing, investigating cases left, right, and center, declaring cases to be completely solved because there's nothing weird going on here, ma'am. Uh, by the late 1960s, um, Blue Book's PR campaign uh, will have expanded to include participation in a television show. Um, any of you remember Jack Webb? And Dragnet, and Dragnet is this sort of police, for those of you who are younger, it's a police show where, where the cops are, are really good guys, and they're straight shooters, and they're straightforward, and they always just want what's best for everybody involved. The message of Dragnet is you can trust the police. They're working to keep our communities safe. The message of Jack Webb's show, Project UFO, you can trust the Air Force, and UFOs are nothing to worry about. Every UFO case is solved within 20 minutes plus commercials, and everything is fun. I think you can find every episode up on, uh, up on YouTube. You, if you watch one, you've pretty much seen all like 37, so you're probably, and there isn't a little, dan, 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 dan. doesn't have the sort of, the sort of hook, so it never really, uh, never really took off. But Blue Book's in full swing. Nightcap is pushing for investigations, the contactees, have been shunted off into weird contacty sort of sort of you know purgatory to, to sort of just talk to themselves. And some weird things start happening. And one of the things that starts happening is that in 1965, a UFO wave of sightings began nationwide in the middle of 1965 that would continue through the end of 1967. So the things that happen here and in the surrounding area in 1966 are part of a much larger wave of sightings and reports that's going on at the same time, which is, which is important to remember, that especially when we get to the, the end result of all of this. And it coincides also, and, and this is tricky, coincides with a massive upswing in media coverage of UFO sightings and public awareness. Uh, the Gallup organization did a poll in 1967 and um, found that 94% of Americans were familiar with the term UFO. That's a lot. You, know, you don't get 94% of anything in a poll. Um, 40, I want to say 48% of those thought that they might be extraterrestrial spacecraft. People are aware. The news is full of stories of sightings, of strange things happening. Um, there was an incident in Exeter, New Hampshire, that, that uh, writer John Fuller covered. There was a mass sighting. He writes a, an article for Look Magazine, which was a big circulation magazine at the time. I've talked to people, um, one, of my, one of my colleagues who teaches sociology, um, she was a kid when that article came out, and she remembers that article to this day, and said it freaked her out. It freaked a lot of people out. We're also almost to the point 
in the same era of the, uh, the abduction case of Betty and Barney Hill in New Hampshire. Um, same, you know, where it, it would, things are getting weird. Things are getting weird. And here's the thing. Does the wave of UFOs coincide with increased awareness? Does the wave cause the awareness? It, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. The two things feed off each other. Increased sightings leads to increased media coverage, leads to increased awareness, leads to increased media coverage. So, March of 1967, there are major sightings in Dexter and at Hillsdale College, not too awful far from here, but also throughout southeast Michigan. It's not just Dexter or Dexter and Hillsdale. So who are seeing these things? We're going to talk about what they're seeing in a second, but who is seeing these things? Well, a lot of the initial witnesses are police officers, sheriff's <coughs> deputies, um, state police troopers. Remember what I said about the Air Force liking witnesses who were military pilots or commercial pilots? There's a bias there. Well, these are trained people who are trained to be observant. The same sort of positive, it's a positive bias, extends to law enforcement. They're trained to be more observant, more detail-oriented than, like me. So, so a, a report from a law enforcement official at this time is going to generate more attention. And um, there's, uh, I've got a clip here from something that aired on the radio after the whole thing was over. But uh, we got some testimony from uh, the, uh, the Washtenaw County Sheriff. And uh, this, is, uh, this, is really, this is really kind of telling. This has just come in from Ann Arbor. WJR's William Harris reporting from there has just well, introduced the Washtenaw County Sheriff, Douglas Harvey. Sheriff, as I understand it, you just completed an investigation on the scene of the sighting last night. Uh, what did you discover? Uh, we found nothing out there. Uh, there was no indication, no evidence of where it had come down, where the Mr. Manor said it had come down, where my officer stated that the area would have come down. Also, uh, the Gecko County picked up nothing. There was no uh, flat grass, flat brush, or anything that would indicate something had landed there? None whatsoever. Do you have any theories as to what this might be? I wish I did. I wish I had some answers. I, I don't. I uh, was a little doubtful at first. My first sighting, this was on the 17th. We sighted the first one, my men did. Then again on the 18th and then last night. But now we've got too many people, too many trained officers have also seen this. So I, my doubt is gone. I know they've seen something. What it is, I don't know. Do you intend to continue your investigation? Very definitely. Can we find out exactly what it is? I'm going to get some. Do you have any evidence? No. Is there any traces of anything landed? No. Do you have anything to go on? No. But my officers saw something. So you have the officers and the deputies reporting something up to their superior. Their superior believes them because these are people who have not made stuff up in the past. And so when you, yes? Was that Sheriff Harvey? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> Sheriff Harvey, popular fellow. Um, lots, of, lots of name recognition there. Um, yeah, that was Sheriff Harvey. 
Um, so, you know, do we see any grass flattened or anything? No, we're going to keep looking. Because too many people have seen it, and too many of my people have seen it. If it had just been us, probably wouldn't have gotten as much attention. So the witnesses, you've got some witnesses that are, that are fairly, you know, high, uh, high quality. And um, a colonel with the state police said something um, very similar. Well, the Air Force is characteristically silent on UFO reports. State Police Colonel Frederick Davids says he plans to look into the matter. We, we certainly are interested in these reports that are coming in, and we intend to look further into it. We have uh, men assigned now that are inquiring into it, and especially we'll talk with Washington County authorities and with some of the people that are supposed to have uh, seen certain objects. What is your personal attitude toward these objects? Well, actually, I know nothing more about them than what I read or hear in the reports, but when you get uh, as many people citing something, as cited uh, uh, things last night in the Dexter area and over the weekend, why, I think it's time to take another long, hard look at it anyway. I think many of these people certainly aren't the type that make a report just for the sake of the publicity probably truly did uh, see something. State Police Colonel Frederick Davids, questioned by WJR Newsman Dave White. So again, there's, there's sort of a, a citation of the quality of the witnesses that, that come forward. So on the ground in Dexter, in Hillsdale, we'll talk in, in this region, people are seeing things. And but what are they? What does, sheriff, what does the sheriff think it is? They're going to ask him. I don't believe it yet, but I, I can't doubt my men. Uh, uh, quoting one of my officers this morning, Sheriff, I've seen it, but I still don't believe it. I've got to believe my men. There is, regardless of what people may or may not have seen, as this thing builds and as more people see things in the skies, not just here, but in, um, in Washtenaw, Livingston, Monroe counties, and by the end of the month, from Cleveland to the UP, there are, and all over Metro Detroit and everywhere in between, people are seeing strange things in the sky, some of which are obviously airplanes or other things, but people are starting, I don't want to say panic, but this is sort of starting to take on a life of its own. And it really takes off with two specific incidents, which are the reason these become known as the Dexter and Hillsdale sightings. One was um, a truck driver uh, named Frank Manor who lived in rural Dexter in a, a rented, uh, rented farmhouse. It's not there anymore. Um, it's, like a, it's like a housing development now or something. I saw some, I tried to find, I tried to find it once. And I went there three years ago with the MUFON director. Okay, how is it now? Is it, it's just a house. Is it just a house? Okay. Yeah, I saw some pictures. Where was I? I was at the Swamp Gas Conference. The, um, the I was there too. How many people were at the Swamp Gas Conference? Okay. Um, it, was, it was good. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, so Frank, Frank Manor is in Dexter. And he and his family are, are there. And they see something near the swamp, near their house. And he describes it. 
this way. Um, we got to about 500 yards of the thing. Five, five, think, keep that in your head, 500 yards. That's, it is a waste. Um, it was sort of shaped like a pyramid with a blue-green light on the right-hand side and on the left, a white light. I didn't see no antennas or portholes. The body was like a yellowish coral rock and looked like it had holes in it, sort of like if you took a piece of cardboard box and split it open. You couldn't see it too good because it was surrounded with heat waves like you see in the desert. The white light turned to a blood red as we got close to it. Then Ron, his son, said, look at that horrible thing. The next night, within a couple days, people are out at the farm wanting to see the flying saucer. It turns into a, a big thing. People sort of gather. Around the same time, Hillsdale College, um, 87, and I, 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 love, I love the old-fashioned um, old uh, newspaper reports about college students, 87 co-eds, <laughs> that's, that's women who go to college, we, we invent a word for it, um, 87 women who go to college um, see something from their dorm, and they, they call the authorities, and they, they talk to people, and this is one of the, uh, one of the witnesses from Hillsdale talking about this. A co-ed at the University in Hillsdale saw the thing. It's and not a university. Like Sarah Robinson. Last night around 11.30, we've been watching the storm that was taking place here, and we looked out our second floor dorm window and saw what appeared to be a house almost in the middle of the arc. But we realized there wasn't a house there, so we kept watching it, and it had a yellow glow, and the lights were fluctuating. And we watched it for a while, it was hovering, or seemed to be, because the lights were fluctuating and almost going around. And so we called the civil defense because we'd been asked to call and give a direction at a time, and he called the police. And um, as they drove up the Arab Road, their red lights bothered whatever we were seeing because it moved up and down into the right and left. And the lights fluctuated even more. And um, then they came back down the road, and the civil defense man drove around the back of our door, and his lights shone across the arc. And this also bothered it because it became very bright, and then it became very dim, and it started to move back across the horizon. So we kept watching it, and the civil defense man came up to our room to watch it. And he watched it for about a half an hour, and he said it was, he would say it was definitely a UFO. So we have testimony. And they called, she mentioned a civil defense worker. Again, somebody with credibility. Somebody who, his last name was Horn. Bud Van Horn. Bud Van Horn, Bud Van Horn. And he's taking this very seriously. And he wants some action, and he and the sheriff and the state police people say, look, this has gotten far enough. We need the Air Force to come in and do something, if nothing else, because people are freaked out. Um, I just love this picture of Frank Manor pointing um, through the window. It is the most staged, awkward thing ever. And this is, this is sort of emblematic of, of 1960s UFO reporting. Um, strike a dramatic pose, 
look slightly goofy doing it. There's still a ridicule factor. I'm going to talk about that too because the tables are going to turn on who's getting ridiculed here in a little bit. So there's Frank Manor pointing. So Frank Manor, see it. There's other sightings beyond Dexter and Hillsdale, but those are the ones that get the most attention. Um, the Manor sighting because of the detailed, uh, the detailed description, the Hillsdale sighting because of the, the massive number of witnesses. But we heard Manor's description of what he saw. Other people were seeing things that looked very structured and, and very like uh, craft, but were a little bit different from what Manor saw. Um, here's one drawing of it. Uh, we've, got, uh, we've got lights around, we've got a dome, and we've got an antenna uh, down here. Um, you'll notice in, in the description, Manor said, I didn't see no antenna. So this object had been described, so his was a little different, but again, 500 yards away, little antenna like that, I don't think any of us would see that. Quilted surface is mentioned. Um, I, I think you could plausibly argue that a, a sort of weird quilted surface is not entirely dissimilar to the, the coral-like texture that, uh, that, he, that he perceived. Here's another um, sort of more squared off drawing of it. Um, lights antenna, quilted, uh, quilted surface. So, Project Blue Book investigates, and this is where things get weird, because there's sort of a, a very quick sort of thumbnail sketch of what goes down that, that is usually, you know, what, what's, what's talked about. And there's also more detailed... Um, this is all very nuanced. And what happens in Dexter that I'm going to tell you about and that you might know about is, is deeply, deeply mired in the politics, the internal politics of Project Blue Book at the time. And it's deeply mired in Professor Hynek's own sort of increasing irritation at how the Air Force is handling UFOs. And... Heineck has got, Heineck, the scientific investigator, has got some junior scientists, one's a computer scientist named Jacques Vallée, um, who are, who are who's pushing him to, and, and, and sort of urging him, like, let's go be real scientists about this. And Heineck is like, have you met these Air Force guys? They know what they want, and so we've got to work within the system. What happens in Dexter is an example of Heineck doing his best to work within the system and it just about breaking. And then what happens afterwards, it's, it's, an, it's a fascinating story. Um, best book to read about this, I think, uh, that's out now is um, 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 by Mark McConnell, um, the, uh, the Close Encounters Man. It's uh, his biography of, of J. Allen Heineck, and it goes into this pretty extensively. And also, Heineck's entire career, including his his post, um, his post Blue Book career. So Mark McConnell. Um, so Project Blue Book investigates. They send J. Allen Hynek. And they send only J. Allen Hynek. No junior officers to help him question people. No secretaries to take notes. Nobody. They send one guy 
who a couple days before had fallen down, tripped and fallen, and broken his jaw. His jaw is half-wired shut. He's an incredible amount of pain. He shows up to what he describes as sort of a half-panicky surface. Circus, sorry, circus. People are, like, he's with deputies, and they're stopping him. They're stopping the street and say, look, look, there's one. Dr. Heineck, there's one. It's a UFO. And he looks, this is an astronomer, he looks up. He says, it's the star Arcturus. It's just Arcturus. And he, said, he said in an article for, I think, Saturday Evening Post about it later, he said, it was at this moment I knew things in Michigan had gotten a little out of control. The story had started to take on a life of its own. And so he talks to witnesses, and he decides to go with the two cases that have the most witnesses and the most evidence, and that is the Manor case, and that is the Hillsdale case. Everything else, basically, he does not have the resources or time to deal with the wave that's covering the Great Lakes region. So he's dealing with those two cases. And what's interesting, kind of, is um, his superior at Project Blue Book, uh, Major Hector Quintanilla, the head of Project Blue Book, when asked by the press about what's going on in Michigan, he says, Dr. Hynek is on the scene. He's going to have a press conference tomorrow. Hynek didn't know he was having a press conference tomorrow. <laughs> Hynek didn't know what he was going to say at this press conference, but talking to Washington, it was very clear he was to say something at this press conference to get everybody calmed down. Because this was getting, this was, here's the thing, this was starting to look bad for the Air Force. So Heineck consults with some people at the University of Michigan, does some reading, and presents his finding. And if we can all just say it on the count of three, one, on the count of three, <laughs> it's okay. Um, swamp gas. Swamp gas. Well, they were both things that took place in swampy areas. You were at the time of year when gas trapped underground by ice and frozen dirt begins to be released. It glows. There's reports of it throughout history of. of ignited swamp gas acting in sort of the way of some of the lights people have seen. The explanation is so bad, he has to do another press conference to explain his explanation. <laughs> and here is a little bit, uh, a little bit from that, some, uh, some highlights. Here are some highlights with the speaker turned back on. Two cases at Dexter and at Hillsdale. I wanted. Uh, here's one part I do want to read. I wanted clearly understood that I'm not making a blanket statement to cover the entire UFO phenomenon over the past 20 years in this and other countries. I'm discussing only the Dexter and Hillsdale sightings, and then only that material which I have been able to sift down and to uh, that which forms a consistent picture. For instance, the groups of reports came in over several days from different localities. Many of these have nothing whatsoever to do with the 
citing at Hillsdale and at Dexter. Now, uh, I emphasize in conclusion that I cannot prove in a court of law that marsh gas is the full explanation of these sightings. But it does appear to me extremely likely. This is a man who does not want to sit up there saying marsh gas. I am talking about these two specific things, nothing else. I cannot prove this in a court of law. It appears to me to be very likely that it could be this. It's almost like you ever... There's a phrase that I read recently in a book that sums this up completely. Malicious compliance. Your boss tells you to do something you don't want to do. You go out and do it exactly to the letter in such a way that makes it extremely obvious your instructions were dumb, boss. <laughs> Here I am. Here's my explanation. I'm now, I, I didn't include this part, going to read you five minutes of 100-year-old, 100, 200-year-old translated Swedish scientific journals about the behavior of, of marsh gas. It's actually kind of funny. You, you can see he's sort of... He's, he's not having any more fun than we are with that. So here's the thing. This is, this is bad for, a long, for the Air Force. For a long time, UFO witnesses, believers, proponents had been the subject of mockery in the national press. In, in one newspaper, the New York Times, they, they consistently were, even when other papers were, were, were generally more kind. This marks one of the first times when the Air Force is the one getting made fun of because of this explanation. And unfortunately, it's Hynek getting made fun of. It's not his superiors who pressured him into a press conference he was not ready for. And two members of Congress from Michigan... Um, Weston Vivian, who was the um, congressman for Ann Arbor, uh, the Ann Arbor area at the time, and Gerald Ford from Grand Rapids, who was the House Minority Leader. They call for a hearing about, not about what the UFOs were in Michigan, a hearing about the Air Force's handling of the UFOs in Michigan, because in his press release, uh, in his statement, Ford said it was flippant. It disregarded the needs of the American people and the people in this area to have a straightforward explanation of what was going on. So the House Armed Services Committee wants some answers from the Air Force. And I think this is at least partially because there are some concerns that maybe what's being seen is something the Air Force is working on, that the House Armed Services Committee, which, you know, sets the budget and oversees the executive branch, does not know about. And Hynek was asked by the press, could this be a, a, a secret Air Force experiment or a secret Air Force project? And his response was, you'll have to ask the Secretary of the Air Force. So, Harold Brown, Secretary of the Air Force, <laughs> is called before the House Armed Services Committee. This is actually, I, 
I couldn't find a picture of him when he was Secretary of the Air Force in 66. This is when he is Secretary of Defense in the late 1970s, so full disclosure, this is not of that particular hearing. But I, I thought it was a very good please stop peppering me with questions sort of pose. Um, Brown explained, yes, there are unexplained cases. There are cases we do not have answers for. However, there is no evidence that these are extraterrestrial spacecraft, and there is no evidence that these are a threat to national security. So basically, who cares? Heineck comes up to testify next. This is two weeks after, things moving fast then. Two weeks after all this, they're having hearings. Um, Heineck says some things that he had been um, he had been wanting to say and trying to say for a long time. He comes out and says that the official Blue Book policy of trying to explain away every sighting as being mundane or a hoax is unscientific in nature and is counterproductive. And the Air Force is basically not interested in understanding whatever it is people are seeing. They're interested in closing the cases as quickly as possible. That does not make Heineck many friends at Project Blue Book, especially since he did not clear any of this through the Legislative Affairs Office at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base like he was supposed to. There's a procedure for these things. You're going to make a statement to Congress. Okay, we would really like to see the statement you're going to make before you make it so we can change it, you know, if we need to. And, and he didn't do that. He just shows up and just shoots his mouth off and says, look, this is, this is a bad way to run this. And I think it would be nice to have, you know, an officially, congressionally mandated investigation into this that is independent of the Air Force, which is what organizations like NICOT, 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 I don't know where that accent came from. NICAP had been wanting to do for a very long time. Uh, last to testify was Major Hector Quintanilla, head of Project Blue Book, who was, uh, who was not happy. Uh, you heard Heineck's testimony. He shows up. And um, from Heineck's point of view, from the point of view of um, other people who worked for Project Blue Book, um, Quintanilla just lied about stuff. He was asked, what about unidentified objects that have been spotted on radar where those cases are still not solved? He said, we don't have any unsolved radar cases. There were dozens and dozens of unsolved radar cases. They were just sitting right there, and he knew about it. But no, he basically, I don't want to say perjures himself. He strongly misrepresents what Blue Book was doing. So, what can we learn? Public ridicule, the Air Force's explanation, has a lot to do with the growing anti-establishment sentiment that is occurring in the mid-1960s. If this is 1956 instead of 66 and the exact same thing happens, people are probably going to believe the Air Force. But it's 1966. We're not quite into the summer of love yet, but we are well into the free speech movement. We are, we are past the sort of high water mark of the civil rights era. We are a year after the highest numbers of troop deployment in Vietnam with constant promises 
that the end is in sight. People, especially young people, especially young people working in the media, are increasingly mistrustful of government. Or at the very least, increasingly unlikely to believe what the government says simply because they're the government. Also, the handling of and fallout from the Dexter sightings marks a turning point in UFO history, UFO culture, because those requests for an investigation and for an inquiry do happen. And it would uh, be called the Condon Committee, after Edward Condon, um, the guy in charge of the scientific study of unidentified flying objects. Congress and the Air Force offered hundreds of millions of dollars to universities around the country to do this. Almost all of them said no. Northwestern said no. Harvard said no. Yale said no. MIT said no. Caltech said no. Stanford said no. We're not dealing with UFOs. I don't care how much money you give us. It's dumb. Finally, the University of Colorado, which apparently didn't have much else going on that week, says, okay, we'll take your money. Edward Condon is put in charge of it. They assemble a bunch of scientists. They look at the Blue Book cases. And they conclude that something like, in a, in a book that you could buy at any bookstore, that something like 89% of these cases are explainable through natural phenomenon, misidentified aircraft, or hoaxes. They also conclude there is no further scientifically valid reason for the Air Force or the government to put money into investigating flying saucers. Not everybody thought that. One example is a book called UFOs, Yes, where the Condon Committee went wrong by one of the scientists who was involved who said basically Dr. Condon came into this with his results sort of predetermined. Much like Blue Book, it was argued the goal of the Condon Committee was to explain that UFOs were nothing but a bunch of very normal things that we don't need to worry about or spend money on. But uh, the damage was done. Um, because in the news now, in 1967 and 1968 and into 1969, as all of this started to come out, people don't hear the Air Force says UFOs are nothing to worry about, which had always been a statement that was kind of suspect. What people hear is scientists say UFOs are nothing to worry about, which is a little bit weightier and has a wider effect. We start to see, we look at polls, interest in UFOs among the public declining. The major UFO organizations begin to lose members. By the early 1980s, NICAP and APRO would be gone. MUFON uh, would arise to sort of take its place as a national or international UFO organization. But for a number of reasons, not just this, the, the old school sort of, sort of fades away. UFOs do not go away. The 70s sort of mark a turning point uh, where the abduction idea that we start to see, the abduction phenomenon that we start to see in the 1960s um, begins, to, uh, begins to increase. We start to see writings like, by scientists like Jacques Vallée and, um, and very interesting writers like John Keel that begin to explore the possibility that UFOs and other paranormal manifestations like, like ghosts and various aspects of folklore, that all of these might be 
cryptozoology things and Bermuda Triangle stuff, that all of it might be part of the same larger phenomenon, which I think is really cool. Um, the 70s get kind of weird. And ufology kind of fractures. Because here's the thing, NICAP and others wanted a scientific investigation. They said, if we get one of these, the scientists will look at the evidence and say, boom, aliens. That's not what scientists said. In a lot of ways, it's a real be careful what you wish for sort of moment. Because you never know, you get all the scientists in a room, you never know what they're going to say. Now some of them, like Dr. Harkins of um, the Condon Committee, made the very, I think, very good point that, okay, let's say 89% are not, or are identifiable. What about the other 11%? That's a lot. 11% of 13,000 of the sightings that were just reported to the Air Force. That's a lot. Forget what you think it might be. As scientists, we have a responsibility to investigate what this is and to keep looking at it. The government didn't think so, at least officially. Uh, we know, we, we, we know, and I think deep down, we, we know, the government pays attention to things that are in the skies. They do. That doesn't mean it's alien. Doesn't mean it's not. But they pay attention. In the news in the last year or so, year and a half, two years, revelations about government programs that have continued to investigate aerial anomalies, these have resurfaced, and... You know, it's news, it's in the headlines, and, and honestly, deep down, I'm like, I'm not surprised. I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that, I, I think obviously the fact that it's in the newspaper means that they've changed the name and reshuffled it and buried it deeper and changed its mission. So now we have something to chase while the real secret stuff keeps going, but I'm cynical and paranoid. So that's, uh, I wasn't kidding. Uh, no, I am cynical and paranoid, but it's fun, you can laugh. So. Um, thank you. That, uh, that ended almost right on time, but, but thank you, and I'd be happy to take uh, any questions you have. One thing that struck me is that the audience, which was the largest I had the whole summer, was enthusiastic about the sightings in the area, but not, as far as I could tell, made up of hardcore believers that something otherworldly had been going on. Among those who talked to me about their memories of the time, the one thing that seemed to stick with them was the amount of attention the sightings received and the huge number of people, reporters and saucer spotters alike, who flooded the town. If you're interested in this story, I recommend Mark McConnell's biography of J. Allen Hynek called The Close Encounters Man, which has a great chapter on the Dexter incident and its fallout. As always, you can check out past episodes, read some reviews of saucer-related stuff, and support the show at saucerlife.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life or email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. Thanks this week to the Dexter Library for having me in to talk about UFOs. The Saucer Life Encounter 63 is a production of Chizo Media LLC. Chizo Media, working for the good of mankind along the lines of truth. Our associate producer is S.J. Hanover III. Till next time, keep watching the skies because the skies are watching you. <laughs>